Parenting is often lived in the extremes. It's either great joy or chaotic overwhelm. In one moment, you're nailing it, and the next, you're losing your cool. I want to help you find your way to the messy middle, to a place of balance. You see, balance is a verb, not a state of being. It is a thing you do, not a thing you are. It is an action, a process, a series of micro-corrections that you make each and every day to keep yourself feeling centered. We are never truly balanced. We are engaged in the process of balancing. Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Froyan, and this is the Balanced Parent Podcast, where overwhelmed, stressed out, and disconnected parents go to find tools, mindset shifts, and practices to help them stop yelling at the people they love and start connecting on a deeper level, all delivered with heaping doses of grace and compassion. Join me in conversations that will help you get clear on your goals and values and start showing up in your parenting, your relationships, your life with open-hearted authenticity and balance. Let's go. Hi, Stephanie. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about your family, what you've got going on and how I can support you? Yeah. So my name is Stephanie Sims and I have four little boys. They are two, four, five, and eight. And we have one on the way due in July. And we don't know if it's a boy or girl. (laughs) We have found out with every single one of them, except for this one. So it's driving everyone crazy. I feel like everyone wants a girl, but I would be totally happy either way. I am homeschooling them all this year. So it's been really eye-opening to just, I'm a teacher in general. I'm a special education teacher, but I've been home now for a couple of years, but it's been really interesting just seeing like who they are as learners and kind of what things trigger them, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are. I feel like it just has given me a really good insight into my children just in general. So I'm super thankful for this time. Also super thankful for teachers that are yes, still in school for next fall. But it's been really, really good and eye-opening to really spend this much time with my kids. They came home, you know, last March of 2020 before the pandemic and we just stayed home this entire time. So, so yeah, I have also been seeing some things we started talking about that I reached out to you for, um, with some of my kids. I don't know if you want to go into that, but I would love just wisdom from you. Some just even encouragement or whatever around certain behaviors that I've been seeing. Yeah. I think you're not alone in seeing new and different sides to our kids, things, you know, having interaction, seeing them in context that we normally would not have access to when they're in school away from us. I think lots of parents are seeing new sides to their kids, some incredibly positive and some a little concerning that we would never even have known about if we weren't having our kids at home like we are and like many of us have had this past year. So yeah, go dive into it. What are you seeing that you're worried about? So I have a, so all of my boys, obviously they're all different. They all have different personalities and whatever. I have two boys who are a little more like internal processors and they're also just calmer in general. (laughs) But when they are, even when they get upset, it is still just this more like, oh, I'm aggravated. Like, and then it just kind of blows over. 99% of the time, obviously they have tantrums and whatever, but typically it's handled in a quote unquote, like, I don't not mature is probably not the right word, but a way that like seems typical to me for a child. And then I have a kid who's like socially acceptable. Like it's, they, they handle it disappointments or aggravations or frustrations in a way that's more acceptable. Right. It's also quicker. I feel like, yeah. yeah, like they get over it quicker. Like I can almost reason with them more. You know, so it's like that initial kind of like fire and then it's like, okay, 
you know, we can kind of, I can talk through it with them or whatever. But then I have just run into another one of my children who is very much a verbal processor and he is very impulsive, both physically and verbally. And so part of that, I think is, I mean, I'm an external processor. I know that or a verbal processor just in general. So I think that we kind of share that, but at the same time, it's typically not a positive thing. It is typically like he gets mad. He immediately punches or like he gets Mm -hmm. mad and it's an immediate, I hate you, or you're the worst or some like very strong language that like, I don't know that with my other kids, I've ever been told, I hate you. We don't even use the word hate in our home. And so it's like these words that are coming out of his mouth that are very strong, but then I'm like, Hey, where did you even hear those from? <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And two geez, old peeps. Like it is, I mean, it is like spitfire. Like the second something happens there, it doesn't seem to be any kind of like reasoning time or like time to think about what is happening logically. And so me trying to parent that I'm trying to be aware of the fact that like, okay, you're at least telling me how you're feeling, but at the same time, you can't punch your brothers. He doesn't punch me, but also you can't talk like that. I had my two-year-old, I asked him to put a toy away the other day and he literally looked at me and said, oh, I hate you, mom. Mm. And so now you're worried that that he's language now, you know? And I was like, oh no, this is not okay. So Anyways, I'm like just working through like, how the heck do I respect the fact that he's feeling what he's feeling, but also putting up boundaries of like, this isn't okay. And oftentimes he fairly immediately regrets it. Like he will punch or he will say something and he'll look at me like, I shouldn't have done that. I know that now I'm going to have to have some kind of consequence, but you know what I mean? So anyways, Mm, and I feel guilty because I'm like, okay, you know what you're doing. (laughs) I don't know what to do. Right. So you know, you've said a couple of times, like, you can't do that. It's obvious. He knows that. he's He knows he's not supposed to do that. So one thing that can be really helpful is to just reframe this, all of this, from something that he has active choice and will over to something that is impulsive, like you were saying before. So the general assumption that in those moments when he's overwhelmed, when he's flooded, when he's triggered, if he could do something different than hitting or saying a hurtful phrase, he would, because he knows he's not supposed to do that. You see it in his face. The second it comes out or he does it, then he's like, oh no, I wasn't supposed to do that or something. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He knows he's not supposed to do that. So there's this phrase that comes out of Ross Green's work. He wrote the book, The Explosive Child. This says that kids do well when they can. Sometimes I like to extend that to say more broadly, kids do well when they have the skills they need to do better. You know, so this is clearly a moment where you have a kiddo who is gets dysregulated. So when you were describing your two other kiddos and then this one, I had a very clear picture of two kids who were well regulated, who have can handle the ups and downs of life and when they, you know, get a little bit dysregulated, they can bring themselves back down into an even keeled state. And then you have one kiddo who has some self regulation I don't like to use the word deficits, but just some self-regulation skills that need built, some different abilities, some different needs, some different like levels of what he's capable of right now at this developmental stage. And so you're noticing something between your kids that I think is so important for us to keep in mind is that none of these things are on purpose. For the most part, this is temperament and personality, something that is kind of inborn, something that's in their neurobiology 
biology and it's the luck of the draw for kids. So you have two kids who have a lucky response to being upset. They have a response that's socially acceptable. They had the skills that they need to regulate and modulate their behavior in moments when they're upset. They're just lucky. And you have another child who has an unlucky response to being upset. There's no good or bad attached to it. It's just one, some, these, some kids got through the luck of the draw. They got these skills and through the luck of the draw, your other one got another set of coping behaviors. My kids have a very similar division. I have one kid who's, when she's overwhelmed and upset, she crumples and cries and asks for a hug. Like that's a super like lucky response. That response inspires compassion. That response is like, oh, you're struggling here. Come let me help you. Whereas my other one, when she's struggling with the exact same things, can't get her shoes on, a seam is funky, you know, in her shoe. You know, she yells, screams, I hate you and throws the shoe at me. It's the same problem. There's a wrinkle in her sock or a seam in her sock that feels uncomfortable in her shoe. It's just that one kid has a really lucky response to that, one that inspires compassion and connection and and assistance. And the other one has an unlucky response, one that inspires punishment, control, making sure she knows it's not okay. Do you know what I mean? Like so and so you're noticing that in your kids that one, some of your kids have a lucky response and some have a, an unlucky response. Mm -hmm. How does that reframing help at all? Yeah. Well, so I think that it's helpful for me for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think that it, it helps me not look at it as good and bad. It helps me. You were on my podcast a while ago and I feel like I say to myself all the time and not to my kids all the time. And I actually, in my stuff that I'm doing in my webinar that I'm doing right now, I'm talking about trauma and it's all related to finances, but I like pointed back to you so many times, even in my thing, because when you said every child gets something different in, but every child gets what they need, right. Or every child gets what they need, but every child needs something different. Like to me, that just was like, okay, I can just take a freaking breath because this kid needs something different than all of my other kids, you know, or they all just need something different. So I think it's really helpful for me to look specifically at each of the kid and to not necessarily, like you said, don't attach any moral to it. It's not good nor bad. It's just, it is kind of what it is. So it gives me a starting place, I guess, to go from there. And, and what I'm also seeing in this child is he's very, very sensory seeking. Yeah. He is very physical. Like my husband at night lays his almost full weight mm. on this child and he just loves it. Like he loves squeeze hugs. Like he just want, like, and honestly, sometimes we'll take my hand and squeeze it so hard and it like hurts. <laughs> I'm like, ow. And he's like, Oh, sorry. He just needs that really deep pressure. pressure. So I don't know if that is like something else that might just be a part of this, you know, that, that immediate like physical response could be that sensory seeking part of this also. But I will say what makes me sad, I guess, or I don't know if it's sad or scared or whatever. It's that my two other kids are very close. And I think it's because, I mean, for a lot of things, they're closer in age, but they're all close. I had four kids in six years. <laughs> so it's like they're all close. <laughs> But because that relationship between the others can be very like pretty cordial, if they get mad, it's over. But when this one enters into the conversation or into playing or whatever, when he's mad, it's like somebody's getting punched. Or if we have like a cousin come over, I see this child being like, they don't want me, he'll come in and say, they don't want me to play or they stop playing when I come over yeah. or whatever. And I think like you were saying is that the other ones are seeking this connection or the way they handle conflict 
is seeking connection still, or it's inviting this connection or empathy or whatever. The way that my, the child that we're talking about kind of <laughs> goes into this <laughs> conversation with even play and is impulsive and physical and aggressive, like verbally, then all of a sudden he's on the outside because like you said, that's not socially acceptable. Mm-hmm. And so it breaks my heart for him to see that, you know? So anyways, that's like a deeper thing that I've started to see, but it's starting to like really upset my mama heart for sure. Of course it is. It's natural to be worried about our kids' futures and their relationships with each other and and future relationships with friends and partners down the road. Of course, it's natural to worry about those things. Um, So I just want to go back to the sensory seeking thing. I think you have great wisdom there in noticing that. Hitting is actually a very grounding response. It's something that he likely is doing intuitively to help himself regulate if that can be redirected. So if in calm moments, you can teach him how helpful hitting can be when we're hitting things that are safe to hit. That might be a conversation that you can have outside of the moment. When he's in the moment, he can't learn something new. And it's very, very hard to bring in a new skill when, you know, as Dan Siegel would say, our lids are flipped, right? So when our frontal cortex is offline, we're triggered, we're in kind of our animal brain and our fight or flight system, hitting is a fight response. And hitting is grounding to our nervous systems because we're releasing that tension and we're completing the stress response cycle when we take that action, right? And so if we can do a little bit of psychoeducation with our kids outside, explain that. So when you feel like hitting, it's your body's very, very wise response to get stress out of your body. Your body knows exactly what it needs to do to feel better. Hitting feels good to you. It feels good to your body. It feels settling to your body. Big jumps feel settling to your body. What are some other things that feel like big squeezes feel good? When dad lays on you, it feels good. Thinking about what other like big high pressure inputs feel good and relating to them to his body's very wise attempt to get regulated again. And then my kids, when they're in hitting phases, we go around our house and find appropriate things to hit or kick. Um, I have a, a client whose kid is a kicker. And so they went through their house and in every room they just committed, you know, this one piece of drywall, we're going to be have to replace once they're older. And they put up a, a square of blue painter's tape on it and they just committed it like that blue square is going to get replaced. We're just committing to repairing our walls, you know, just this one square. And they put blue painter's tape around it and they give a place for the kid to kick, you know. And so this is about accepting our kids, teaching them to listen to their bodies, their very wise bodies, and and having another outlet. So finding things that he can hit, not his brother, but to get that impulse out, to complete that stress cycle may be really helpful. I don't know if you've done that, explored other possibilities. I know you're a teacher, so you probably know lots of this stuff. I mean, sometimes I feel like I, yeah, so like we'll do even like couch cushions or, you know, just different things like that. But honestly, like, I feel like, especially even like today, I mean, today and yesterday, I have just been on edge too. So I'm like, mm. partly this is like my issue, but it's like, it's always I, our issue. <laughs> it's always us. Like, <laughs> like, I feel like I, like we have talked before, like, I feel like I'm fairly trauma informed, just being a special education teacher, being a foster parent you know, all of these things. And so I'm pretty good at like keeping my cool, like not rising with them and all of these things. However, like the past two days, I'm just like, Oh my gosh. And this is like, I should not have said this. And I know it when it's coming out of my mouth, I should not say this, but I'm like, told him, I'm like, 
I, you literally cannot be around anyone without somebody getting hurt. Like Mm. that's so bad to say to him. I already know that, but it just like, I mean, it was, I mean, it was five times in an hour and it happened like multiple hours, you know? And it's like, sometimes it's an accident. Sometimes it's this impulsive behavior. He's mad, but it's like, I can't, I can't focus or do anything because Mm. someone is getting hit. Someone's getting, you know, he's just being too rough or whatever. And I'm like, I like was annoyed that I said that, but I also don't even know that I could have stopped myself because it was like so constant. And I'm like, what? Like, I am just at a complete loss because I'm like, I don't know what to do because I have had the conversation with him. Like I said, he looks remorseful. It's not like he's just like, screw it all. No, yeah, <laughs> no. Know. And I'm just These like, are not well, choices on his part. I do. Yeah, these are not active choices on his part, even when he's like not even upset and he's being, you know, rough and tumble or whatever it is, you know, and somebody accidentally gets hurt. For the most part, these are not active choices, I would imagine. This is a a dysregulated nervous system is what it sounds like to me. I can't remember if we've talked before, if you've explored OT for him, occupational therapy. I haven't, but I mean, I've noticed, like I said, like the sensory stuff and that thing. But we also give him a lot of sense. Like I said, like, you know, we'll give like sweet hugs. We got him a weighted blanket. We, you know, have done certain things like that, but I don't just don't think it's enough. Like, I mean, obviously that's not, not everything needs to be kind of working simultaneously like with, with each other, but I'm just like getting to the point where, I mean, I can tell that I'm probably dysregulated because I got a lot going on. And so it's just like, I'm like, I can't even focus on anything because somebody's always getting hurt or, you know, and not badly hurt. Like, it's just even like a shove or a push or a, whatever. But I'm like, I don't know how to parent this because I have other kids now picking up on this behavior, but then also like, I can't watch him every second of every single day. No, no, of course. And so every time I turn around, you know what I mean? So I'm just like, what the heck, how do I handle this? And I've sent him to his room when I just like, can't even handle it. Cause I, I don't want my other kids to get hurt, you know? And again, it's not like they're, it's not like he's getting punched in the face. It's just like, it's enough to disrupt the whole vibe. <laughs> yeah. And then I know I shouldn't be just be like sending him to his room. I do go and I talk to him. We decompress. We talk once he's whatever. But I'm like, that's to me, that can probably have its place. But also I feel like it's pretty shame filled just in general when I'm saying things like you can't be around anyone without somebody getting hurt. Yeah. <laughs> that's not the right thing to say. But when I'm like, great, you know what I mean? I'm just like, I don't I know do. what else to say. So first of all, I heard you say something that you don't know how to parent this kid. And I would challenge you on that. You do know how to parent this kid. This kid was given to you on purpose. Mm -hmm. This is a kid who is so lucky to have you as his mom. There's a reason why this little one came into your life and is in your family. He fits just like all your other ones do. He's here for a reason. And you are the, just the right mom for him. Yeah. You are. Thank heavens he has you. In other homes, we know what would be happening to this kid. Yeah. And that's not happening in your house. And here you are sitting here with me trying to figure it out. Okay. You're just the right mom for him. Well, I feel like too, that people will say, like when I have conversations about him, when I like reached out to you the first time, I'm like, I feel like I'm not a good talker and crier, but feel like I feel like I'm somebody who I look into parenting stuff a lot. I read a lot of whatever, like I said, I feel like I'm fairly trauma informed just in general. But when I told like some people on market name names, but like I need to reach out for somebody because I remember after a super rough day at some point, I just felt like I remember, I think I might have told you this already, but I remember sitting on the toilet 
lid was closed. It was just like after bath time or whatever. And I was like squeezing this kid (laughs) and Mm. just like holding him. And it was just a rough day just in general. And they were about to go to bed, which I feel like, why do we always, I feel like I always feel guilty once they go to bed because like when it's crazy and loud and during the day, it's like, you know, whatever, you just don't have any patience. And then once survival mode, (laughs) once they start to calm down, it's like, oh, but I remember sitting on the toilet, like just holding him. My boys were getting in bed. My husband was helping. And I was just crying. And I told Justin, I'm like, my husband, I'm like, I feel like we're like, if, if something doesn't change, like, I just feel like we're going to lose him one day. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like he's going to grow up and be like, I feel like I didn't fit in, or I feel like they didn't understand me or whatever it was. And we love him to death. He's like one of the sweetest kids. He's obviously, I mean, he's not always like that. He's super snuggly. He's such a mama's boy, you know? And I'm just like, he just needs something different that I don't really know how or what to get. And so I'm not, you know, so then that's when we kind of started talking just in general and some people are like he's just a kid he's just being a boy he's I'm like I'm telling you it's something different you know maybe I am doing things I mean not everything right but maybe I am doing things right and that just needs to be affirmed or maybe I'm not and I just need more tools but like I refuse to have this child like in my home and not feel equipped to mother him you know so yeah the way he needs it So I will tell you that some kids do have different needs. And it sounds like this is a kid who has some differences, just has some different needs. Sounds like he's got a body that he doesn't always feel comfortable in. And he doesn't know how to get comfortable in. And that's when the seeking comes in, right? But kids who don't feel safe being themselves, they shut down and they stuff it. I hear from so many parents whose kids are complete angels at school, do exactly what they are asked. They are obedient. They are compliant. They are angels. And then they come home and it's a different story, a different kid. And that's because that kid knows it's not safe to be dysregulated at school. It's not that they're well-regulated at school. It's that they're holding it together. You've created an environment where your child feels safe to be themselves. So as much As I understand that fear, especially when you've got one kid who is different, Mm -hmm. that feeling, you know, that fear that he will feel have felt like an outsider. It's clear to me that he wouldn't be doing this if he didn't feel safe to be himself with you. There's that too. There's that that too. Okay. So the thing is with kiddos like this, we got to make sure that their kind of their nervous systems are getting the help and support that they need. You're already doing some sensory stuff because you have this great background that you already know quite a bit. It might be helpful to just think about working with a professional sometimes with these kids who we get pushback with or who are intense. They, we get better results when someone who's not the mom is doing some of that work with them they see things differently like there was stuff that I had this time like with my oldest where I knew for a while we needed more support and I resisted it because I didn't want to have to admit that I like this is my job you know I'm supposed to do this like I have my freaking PhD I should be able to do this you know all of those things and that kept her from getting the support that she needed for a couple years like when we went in to OT for the first time, it was immediately obvious to the therapist who did her assessment that there were a few things that she needed to work on and it would have been faster when she was younger. I'm so mad at myself for waiting, but (laughs) it's okay. You do your best, you know? So that's something to just consider, you know, I mean, if there's other things to add in there, it sounds like he would benefit from some heavy work. I don't know if you've heard that phrase before. 
like literal heavy work. Like I used to have my school kids like carry around heavy backpacks. They love. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So if you Google like occupational therapy, heavy work for kids, if you just Google that, there's lots of lists out there that you can get, but things like, Hey buddy, I have this like stack of logs over here and we need to move it over here. Like they often kids who need heavy work, enjoy it and do it naturally. Or like, Oh look, here's a sand pit. Can you get dig to the bottom? Like, and they dig or moving wet laundry from the washing machine to the dryer. And this is not like hard labor. It's deep pressure work, you know, that they can be doing that oftentimes sensory seekers enjoy because it feels good and grounding. The other thing though, is that these skills that you want him to have, those things will help his body be more well-regulated. Like, I I feel like the picture I'm getting of him is that when he's playing with kids, he kind of bumps into them, gets into their space a little bit more. When a normal kid would maybe like stand close, he like nudges them or bumps them over, you know, that kind of thing. It's a lot of like bugging or like enticing, you know what I mean? Kind of into this (laughs) thing or again just that impulsive like I'm just kind of mad you know so I'm gonna react immediately some of that can even be a little bit of like proprioception not aware of where their bodies are in space it can also be like unskilled like social skills not knowing how to ask to join a game all of those things so taking care of his body his physical body is one piece of it and then practicing and working on the skills he needs to be successful and what's really important is that that work has to happen outside of the moment um so there's an, a river analogy that i like to use in situations like this so we are all traveling down the river of our lives and sometimes it's smooth and easygoing and sometimes we're in the rapids and we're overwhelmed. And this is true for you and it's true for all of your children. So when he is playing with a sibling and gets frustrated or annoyed or disappointed by how it's going and those moments when he's going to hit, right? When he's overwhelmed, he's in the rapids. When he's in the rapids, he can't learn anything new. If you can imagine like going whitewater rafting, have you ever been whitewater rafting? Yeah. yeah. Can you imagine like your, it's your first trip down the river, you've fallen out, you're in the rapids. Now, most of us, if you go whitewater rafting, you get a little crash course before you go about what to do if you fall out while you're in the rapids, right? But if that happens... When you're in the water, like you can't see, like there's rocks coming and people are on the boat shouting, point your feet down river. Like it's really hard to be regulated enough to take on their instructions and get to do what you need to do to get through those rapids. Your kiddo, when he's in that moment, he's about to hit, he's in the rapids. He's been flung out of the boat. He's thrashing around. He doesn't know what to do. And so if we're telling him, hit the couch cushion instead of your brother, you know, use your words, like they're unavailable for that sort of thing, right? So we can either teach them skills for how to navigate the rapids of life better. That has to happen before they're in the rapids or afterwards, right? After they're out and the water is more smooth and calm. Or better yet, what if we figured out what sent them into the rapids, what caused them to fall out of the boat and solve that problem beforehand, proactively, so that rather than, you know, doing the skills teaching of how to navigate the rapids, you're proactively keeping him out of the rapid. Does that make sense? Yeah. And he, I mean, this isn't exactly necessarily what you were just saying, but I will say that he, you know, I mean, I'm around, we have a pretty open floor plan. Like I can pretty much see, you know, what's going on. And so like, oftentimes I can kind of see it 
start to escalate. Yeah, boiling up. We will even like pull back to punch. And I'm like, Graham, you know, and I'll like say, and it, it literally will snap him out of it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, and I can, and he won't follow through with it. And he'll literally, honestly, a lot of times say, oh, sorry, you know, yeah. or whatever. And like, and be done. And he's totally fine or whatever it might be. And so it's like, almost like he just begins something. And then if you can kind of catch him right beforehand, he'll snap out and he'll stop and he'll immediately apologize. Like, oh, sorry. <laughs> or whatever so it's like catching that at the beginning too has been helpful and then he almost immediately deregulates because or regulates because he never fell out of the boat he's like about to tip out and he gets up he's back inside he feels safe and regulated but obviously that's i can't do that all the time no you can't and so part of another thing that happens in ot actually is the your occupational therapist can help get in their body and be more aware of their body. There's an exercise that my daughter's OT did every, cause we had a similar scenario and that we did every time we went in was just a simple exercise of just checking in with your body, noticing it. And anytime she, we moved to a new activity, they practice that exercise of checking in. This was, our OT was amazing. So that's, I mean, that's an option in with this r- whitewater rafting analogy. Yes. Teaching the skill of like staying in the boat, mm-hmm. but also what is it that's making the water rocky all of a sudden? So for example, rather than problem solving, like what to do when you're frustrated with your brother, I would love to see you figuring out what is getting him frustrated and problem solve that. So maybe it's figuring out who's going to use Legos when you're both building with Legos. Maybe that, I don't know what they, what they get into tuffles over, but it, and it's parents often want to be really, really general, like, you know, things like, working together with your brother to pick up your room or something, but you have to be super, that was actually super specific. Tell me one of the things and I'll help. I'll no, help you. no, I know what you mean. Tell me one um, of the like so common of, so, rapids. Yeah, so um, two big things, and actually you pretty much just kind of said them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> number one is I think that it is a, a boundary, a physical space boundary issue because like he will be all up on people. And so like, if my one kid is on the couch, you know, this one will come and sit right pretty much on top of them, you know, and like, just be, and not to snuggle sweetly, but just like, you know, they're like, oh my gosh, like get away from me. That sounds like proprioception to me. Well, so that will happen a lot. And so then it's like, to them, I feel like he feels like this kid's like kind of pushing on him, you know? And so it's just this whole issue. And then I'm like, you have to move, quit touching your brother. And then it just escalates from there. And then the second thing is kind of what you were saying is that also, you know, if I do have them, you know, Hey, you and your brother go clean your room, you and your brother go clean the living room or whatever. And we're working on something. It is always, always, always this child is like not doing. Yeah. And so then that starts an issue. Like nobody wants to be like paired doing all the work. Yeah. Or like yeah. paired with him to like do something. Cause they're going to have to like do it all or you know what I mean? And then I have to go in and I'm like, okay, like step by step. And he's the kid that'll like crawl and like stare at me and stuff. And I'm like, I can't. This is, I don't know what to do. (laughs) Yeah. There's multiple problems in that little scenario that you just shared. There's multiple problems to solve there that all combine likely send him down the rapids, Mm -hmm. right? So there's working together with a sibling. There's 
cleaning up, what does cleaning up mean, you know, so, and when navigating, like, when in the schedule that that happens, what was he doing before, what does he, is he going to be doing after, there's lots of things that go in to picking up a playroom or picking up a bedroom and having to do it with a sibling, navigating it with a sibling too. There's lots of complications. We were, you know, to sit down and really, like, you describe really, really in detail what your expectations are for mm -hmm. him. Like in these moments, there's probably like four or five okay. problems to be solved. And I do there. try to like, so like if I send, first of all, there's like hardly anything in the room. Okay. It's like clothes, <laughs> bedding. They have a little box of, like a little box of toys. And then they basically just have a, uh, a toy box with like dress up, like clothes in it. So there's the room is not a room that can get very messy because it, there's just not a lot in there. I did that on purpose. Uh -huh. and so, and so when I send them in, typically I'll like look at the room and I'm like, okay, you clean up the clothes and the books, you clean up the shoes and the toys. That's it. So that way there isn't this like, yeah, yeah. Sort of like, what am I going to do? What are you going to do? But then it's like, this kid does all the stuff that they needed to do. So I let them be done. And then it's just that an one. issue. <laughs> so, so. And then the problem solving conversation is, hey, buddy, I've been noticing you've been having a really tough time getting your dress up clothes into the bin when it's time to clean up. What's up? And you solve that problem mm -hmm. and, and just go there with him to figure out like what his concerns are. Um, well, once I get into my room, my brother's there and that's really distracting and I just want to play. Or once I start looking at the dress up clothes, I want to, it makes me think of a game I want to play. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, and so then I put what, some on and I mean to pick them up by, you know, then I put some on and then I'm playing a game. Okay. So you get distracted. You want to play with them. So you really are understanding like, and that makes sense. That would be hard. Okay. Is there anything else that makes it hard about, you know, getting the dress up clothes? put away well you know sometimes they're in the corner and that's where our brother is putting away books and mm -hmm. then I can't get to them and so I just have to wait until he's done or I'm, I'm like pulling at straws here you know because I, I don't know your scenario but there's lots of it's amazing the concerns that kids have the things that get in their way and so this I what we're doing thinking about in doing this problem solving which is fully described in Ross Green's book, The Explosive Child, and you know, and which I highly recommend. It was so helpful for me. But we're trying to understand the kid's perspective and what's getting in the way and how we can set them up for success. But in this first part of it, we are not solving the problem. We're just listening to all of the problems that come with needing to put dress up clothes away in their bin in their room when they and their brother are cleaning up their room, you know, like there's these specific scenarios. And then you can ask like, okay, so on days when we ask you to put away the dress up clothes and your brother isn't in the room, is there anything that's hard about that? You know, is there anything that's hard about your brother being there? You know, and so you're just getting really specific, like really granular details from him where you're pulling it out. And then you ask him to prioritize all of his concerns, you know, so you, you are taking notes while you're having this conversation. Like, I mean, these are, you know, formal things. They can be, you know, where you're sitting down, like daughter likes to have a cup of cocoa. Um, my other daughter likes to have fruit snacks that we don't have very often to keep her focused when we're doing these. And I take notes. I have a notebook out. I'm writing them down. And then you like you have them, you list out the things. So like maybe it's um, I get distracted. I start dressing up and I start playing a game and then um, I get tired. It's hard to get them from because the brother is in the way. Like you list them out. Which one of those makes it hardest to put the clothes away 
and maybe they'll say like, I see the clothes and I want to start playing a game. Okay. All right. So, and then you go in and you tell them your concern, right? So the next step is to say, okay, so my concern, you know, with putting the clothes away is, and what is your primary concern with getting dress up clothes put away? Typically just to have them like clean their room. We do it multiple times a day where we just do like two minute cleans. There's six of us in here. And so I just will multiple times a day, just say, okay, like quick two minute clean, like let's do all this. Or we'll put like a song on that we all like and, you know, see how much we can get done in the three minutes or whatever. And all of my kids really respond to that. Or we'll do, I think we even like, I think you even said this, like, okay, you do everything red or you do everything this. I'm really specific about what they're doing just so that our house doesn't get out of control. But it just typically the other kids really respond well to like hustling kind of like for those two minutes. Whereas this one doesn't. This one, it's like, and then the song is over and he's picked up one shoe and it's like, they've cleaned full room, complete rooms. And I'm like, okay, let's not compare. Right. Cause this kid has different skills. Right. Yes. Right? This kid has different things getting in his way. Right. So the kids yeah. don't have those things getting in their way. But my question with this is to like, is that my other kids see this? Right. And so my other kids will say like, Graham didn't, or I keep saying the name, but my kid didn't, you know, this kid didn't do anything. And the truth is, I mean, they may, may have picked up a shoe, may have not like it, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And so they feel like they're kind of like having to carry the weight, which in and of itself, whatever. But at the same time, I feel like this is what is causing just this like gradual disconnect between some of my children, because it's like, it's not, it's when we're playing, he gets too rough. It's when we're sitting and just chilling. He's all up on me. When he, mm-hmm. when, we, when he gets mad, he punches me. When we have to do work together, he doesn't do part of it. And so it's like, it's just, I feel like underlyingly, it's like making this just disconnect between my kids and I can see that. And so that is where I'm like, I want him to pull his weight or whatever it might look like, or be re- obviously respectful within the space of his brothers, because I don't want his brothers to have that resentment you know what I mean you don't you don't want them to resent him right so I'm like how do I balance him being his own self but at the same time like I don't know well I don't even know what the question I don't even know what question I have (laughs) yeah no I I completely understand this because it doesn't feel fair or equitable and you you know and you don't want their relationship their long-term sibling relationship to be damaged by this. And I don't want to necessarily, I mean, and again, I know expectation wise, all kids are going to need something different, but I also don't want to lower my expectation of him because I feel like he, he needs it. Like, I don't know where there, I feel like there's a line and I don't know if I'm walking it well based on like, you know, I don't think all of my kids need straight A pluses in school, but at the same time, like there has to be an expectation there. And it's really interesting. My husband's amazing. He's very supportive of like any kind of parenting thing that we're doing. We did the whole love and logic thing. He's reading whole brain child with me. Like, you know, so he's very into like, whatever I feel like this kid needs, he's very into learning alongside of me. However, I will say that when he will come up and he's not, he comes and yells and is crazy. He will just say, Hey, you need to go do this. And then that kid will go do it. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I'm a stay at home mom. I'm here with him all the time. I know that probably that we have different dynamics in general. My husband and this kid have a great relationship too. Am I lowering my expectations of this kid? You know what I mean? Where my husband still is holding, like, why is there a difference there? I mean, I know there's going to be a difference between parents, but I just don't know what this line is. If I'm crossing it, if I'm being too easy, if I'm being too like, let's talk this out. (laughs) You know what I mean? So, I mean, a clearly delivered expectation can 
always be really, really helpful. And, you know, if you have four kids that you're delivering expectations to all at once, you know, and sometimes even more, because I know you've got foster kids sometimes Mm -hmm. too, versus when your husband comes in and just this one to this one kid has is able to give the full attention to giving an an expectation, a limit, a boundary, and then holding it. Of course, a kid is going to respond differently to that, you know, when our full focus is on a kid. And they know they can trust us to hold whatever boundary it is that, you know, if we've, we're saying, you know, it's, it's time to clean, you know, to put the dress of clothes in the bin and I'm going to stay here, you know, help make sure it gets done. Like that's different than saying, okay, buddy, like it's time to put the dress of clothes in the bin and then walking off to go supervise other cleanup that's happening. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, and no, I'm not saying that that's what you're doing, but oh, the, no. like, yeah. I'm just saying, I think that just as you were saying that, and as I was saying that out loud and thinking like, the other thing is that, so my husband, he works from home, but he, I mean, he works like a full day, you know, whatever the kids can come down and like build Legos by him, but he's pretty much working. And so when he, I feel like he, um, when he's trying to discipline or just instruct them to do something or ask them to do something, it happens less because he's not mm-hmm. in there all the time. And so I feel like he has the ability to be more consistent because, yeah. you know, when you're only asking someone kids to do something X amount of times a day. But when I'm with them from 8 a.m. until whatever, I'm asking them 150 times. And so I'm not consistent all those 150 times. So I feel like it's- And it's diluted. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like it's for me to be inconsistent because I do it so often where he can come in and be pretty consistent with the times that he needs to be. Yeah, 100%. So perhaps a possible lesson is to give fewer commands or requests. (laughs) And there's actually research on that, that when parents reduce- the requests they make of their children intentionally reduce them by 50% that compliance rates go up. It doesn't mean like that means we're like letting our kids walk all over us. It's just really noticing like, do I actually need to tell them to do this right now? Or is this, you know, like, you know, put your shoes on the rug, you know, oh, move that glass back from the edge of the table. Like, you know, oh, your napkin is on the floor. Like what, you know, like all of these little things that we sprinkle in. Yeah. Just bringing awareness and aiming to reduce those actually increases compliance rates for kids. So that's just something out to put out there that you're so right on that. But I mean, I do think that there is room for kids who are differently wired or different, you know, have different abilities and skill levels to have different expectations placed on them. You're a special education teacher, right? So we know that individualized instruction is what works best, right? And so you have a classroom with kids with different levels of skills and abilities, right? And so it doesn't mean having no expectations for your child, but having, you know, figuring out what he can do on his own, what he can do with support and finding that balance is something that perhaps he needs. So like in terms of like setting him up for success, if you have the sense of, and setting up the sibling relationship for success too. So if you have the sense of like, if I send them into the living room to pick up the living room together, one is going to do all of the work and this other one is going to kind of goof around, you know, in quotes and not do anything. And that's going to endanger the relationship the one kid is going to feel resentful. The other kid is going to feel incompetent, probably like they are not good enough because they're not doing what their brother is and it's going to jeopardize their relationship. Then perhaps we adjust that expectation and that kiddo in order to protect the sibling relationship and each child's emotional experience and sense of self. Maybe that kiddo gets different tasks 
on his own in rooms where others aren't so that that comparison can't happen and where you're available to give more support, more scaffolding to that kiddo. I don't know that the setup of your house and all of those things, but there might be possibilities so that he can have an opportunity to feel successful and competent and not in competition with his brothers too, you know? Right. Well, I think too, just with the pandemic, I think a lot of people experience this. I mean, whether or not you chose to homeschool this following year now, or we we're just home last year, you know, all of a sudden they're always together, you know, yeah, like, they need breaks too. Yeah. There's no separation, you know, there's no nothing. And my house right now is it's a ranch and it's literally just like kitchen, living room, dining room is all open and a hallway with four bedrooms. So it's like, there's not a ton of places to just go. And so I feel like they don't have that break. And so then, you know, it's just whatever, but I have been very intentional about like this morning, I called one of my oldest over to do like our homeschool work. But then I realized that like him and this child who typically have probably the roughest, their relationship's still fine, but the roughest kind of relationship, Mm -hmm. they were like snuggled good on the couch, like doing something or playing something or whatever. And I just like backed off. I'm like, you know what? School can wait because this is something positive. And I've like tried to, my husband and I was, t- I was telling him, I'm like, I feel like we need to facilitate them too, specifically where I feel like there's the most friction to go do something fun just together, like with maybe their dad, you know, to just do whatever, just so that they can start to have fun together again. And it's not just this like always negative thing. <laughs> See, Stephanie, this is a perfect example of how you are the perfect mom for you're so wise your intuition is so on point you saw what your kids needed and you held yourself back you let go of your agenda to prioritize their relationships that's beautiful oh my gosh that's beautiful I love to see it because I just feel like it's not as common as I would want to but I think that I've just being like creating fun for them, even just specifically with kids, which is really important for us. I feel like because we have such a big family that my husband takes them out on like, you know, one-on-one dates. I'll go out on like one-on-one dates with me, like have this one-on-one time. But then also, I think that we just also need to do that with their brothers. And then kind of the last thing, I don't know, (laughs) I probably could talk to you forever, but (laughs) the last thing, I don't know if you can speak into for him is just this, or like, just even like like tools or whatever to help with him. It's just very negative inner self-talk. And and I'm somebody who I'm all about affirmations. My kids do affirmations like almost every day they are whatever, but he is somebody where he'll just be playing and he'll get up and walk to me and say, mom, I really am bad at football. He just started flag football. He's like, I'm just really bad at football. I suck at that. I'm not good at that. Like, and it's just that is, I'm so bad at putting my shoes on. Like, it's just so negative. And I'm like, man, where is this coming from? You know, I want to offer you a reframe here in your awareness. So we know that we have about 60,000 thoughts a day and that we're only conscious of, you know, a few hundred of them. Right. So most of us have all of these negative stories about ourselves, habitual thought patterns just running through the back of our brain. He's aware of them. He knows that they're there. That's something you've done. You've helped him understand that he can choose his thoughts because you're using affirmations. You've helped him be aware of his thinking and he is verbalizing them to you. So this is a huge win. All right. This is not a bad thing. Okay. All people have negative thoughts about themselves. Most of the time they just operate in the background and we're not aware of them and we just feel like crap. 
without any awareness that we're thinking or saying these things to ourselves. Yeah. He's aware of it. He knows a story is there. <laughs> oh, seriously. And so when we know a story is there, then we can work with it. Like when we know a thought is present, like then we can start working with it. So this is all good stuff. Okay. I just want to reassure you. Okay. This is all good stuff. This is all <laughs> really fun. negative. My goodness. Yeah. It's, no, but no, this is a good thing. He's aware of it. He's bringing it to you. He is clearly asking for help with those thoughts, right? Mm -hmm. So, And this is further evidence that you're the exact mom that he needs. Thank heavens he's in a home where he's learning how to work with his thoughts right. from his parents. Like, it's beautiful. He's so lucky. <laughs> okay. Does he know about inner coach and your inner critic? Does he know those terms? He does not know those terms, but we, and probably I think that I coach more on like, like the affirmations we do obviously are like positive. They're really mm -hmm. like aligned with the fruits of the spirit just in general, or like things that they're struggling with. I've turned them into affirmations, but I don't, we don't typically talk. So this is probably where my, where I need to work with, but I would typically will have them say that like the positive things, but when he'll come to me and like say negative things, I'm like, buddy, you're not bad at football. Like, you know what I, mean? I kind of like talk yeah, him yeah, through yeah. it instead of, I don't even know what, I mean, what should I? Yeah. Okay. So when he comes to you with those thoughts, first you want to empathize and validate, right? Oh, you've been thinking about football, huh? And you're worried you're not very good at it. Okay. So you've been thinking about that a lot, huh? He'll probably tell you some more. Yeah. And you're worried that you're not good at it. How, like, how do you know whether you're good? So then you get curious, right? So you validate and empathize and then you get curious. You And in this way, you are teaching him how to work with his thoughts. Okay. So then you get curious. How do you know if you're good at flag football or not? You know, saying like, oh, I missed a throw and stuff. Okay. Yeah. So you did you ever make any? Well, yeah, I made some. Okay. And like... How long have you been playing? Like, when did you start? Uh-huh. And the people that you're comparing against yourself, like, when did they start? Oh, they've been doing it for a couple years. Okay. Does it make sense they would be able to catch more passes or run faster? Oh, yeah, that makes sense. They've been practicing longer. Okay. Like, how does a person get good at football? You know, so we're just chatting, you know, and you would be letting him lead, you know, because this is a one-sided conversation right now. It's kind of awkward, but, but yeah. you're just getting curious about it. Like, huh, okay. But only after you've empathized and validated, right? So if we go straight to changing it, they just feel invalidated and like they're not being accepted how they are, right? So we've got to validate and empathize first. Like really like, oh, that's an uncomfortable feeling, isn't it? Nobody likes feeling like they're bad at something, you know, just really sit with them and then do the curious thing and then start thinking about like, okay, is it actually true that you're bad at football? Like, is that actually true? Right. What would he say? He would probably say, I don't know. And I, don't I know. think that he compares himself a lot to his older brothers. Oh, yeah. See, and they've things. done, right. They've and, done so it for I, years. and I think it's a pretty familiar narrative that like, you know, the firstborn child is the quote unquote angel child. Is the, the golden boy. Right. You know yes. what I mean? And so it's like, I don't want to, I mean, I'm sure that there's going to be some level of that, but like, I just don't want him to be comparing himself to his nine-year-old brother. You know what I mean? Like, that's really not whatever, but he, when they're out there playing, they're catching every throw and he's not. And so I yeah. think it immediately makes him, he doesn't see the age gap or the ability mm -hmm. gap, right? Like, I feel like he just sees his brothers and he wants to be able to catch like they do. So it might even be helpful to bring their brother over and be like, hey, hey, buddy, come here, come here. When you first started flag football, like your brother just started, like, did you catch every pass? Mm -hmm. what, what would your oldest kid say? He would probably say, he would say no. 
No, I dropped a lot. Yeah. You know, this is about fact checking, right? We, our brains have like this negativity bias where they gloss over lots of facts to prioritize a point of view or a truth that we've decided is true, right? And so bringing in other information can help us broaden our perspective a little bit. And doing this with him teaches him this invaluable skill that he can use for the rest of his life because negative thoughts about yourself, negative stories are not going to go away. They're always going to be there. You just have to learn to work with them. Um, So another, a book that I do like that kind of teaches this topic is called the girl who never made mistakes. It's a lovely, that is a lovely book. And then Sam and the negative voice. If he likes having books read to him or reading books on his own. I, I, did I even ask how old he is? I'm sorry. Just, no, it's okay. He just turned five. Yeah. Um, So those are two great books that likely isn't reading yet, but um, would love to have read to him. They're lovely books, but that thought work piece, that kind of validating and then getting curious and really evaluating and then deciding like, so that's his inner critic talking to him and you can call it that. And we all have an inner critic and an inner coach. The inner critic is the person who kind of tells us that we're bad at things or that we aren't doing something right. And our inner coach is another voice that's in our head that tells us what we need to do to improve or, you know, kind of builds us up. We can choose which one we're listening to and what one says. You know, he's not too young to learn about his inner critic and his inner coach. And so then when you start asking these questions and then after you are done with the curiosity phase, you can say like, okay, so that was your inner critic talking to you, wasn't it? When your inner critic kind of put that thought in your head, like you're bad at football. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So now we've been talking. What do you think like your inner coach can say to your inner critic next time it starts talking to you and then come up with some phrases to have. And there you go. There's your affirmations. I mean, that's what affirmations are, is cultivating a kind and compassionate inner coach. Right. That's great because I feel like I'm good at like I'll turn that into an affirmation. So I'm good at like, I feel like taking negative thoughts and for myself or even for some of my kids and turning them into an affirmation. But I think I'm missing the whole process of saying like the validating and the compassion. Cause a lot of times my first reaction is like, you're not bad at football. Like, what do you mean? You just started, you you know what I mean? Like this whole reasoning. Yeah. (laughs) You're, you know, you're only five. You're, this is your first season. You've had one practice. Like I start to (laughs) like go through that in my head and he's probably like, I don't, that's fine. I still like, like, Mom. <laughs> yeah, no, you got to sit with him in the, in the stew for a little, just a little bit, just sit with him just right beside him, but just for a little bit and then teach him how to build his own affirmations and affirmations work best when they're believable too. So we were going from like, I'm terrible at football. We can't jump all the way up to like, I'm a football rock star and I'm going to play professionally if I want to, like we, that's just not believable. So, and like, something along those lines that would be more believable would be like, I'm new to football and I'm learning and I get better every day. You Mm -hmm. know, that kind of growth mindset piece of things. Um, So make it believable, but yeah, you gotta, you gotta sit in empathy for just a little bit, (laughs) even though of course our mama hearts are like, no, you're wonderful. You're out there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This is actually something that is very common for kids in the five-year-old range when they're, what they want to be able to do is outstripped by their abilities. It is crushing and frustrating. Uh, We see this a lot with kids who in their drawings and as they are learning to write letters because they simply don't have the hand strength to do 
with their body what they want to be able to do. They know, they can picture it in their heads. They, they've started to be able to, ha they have this new cognitive ability to make clear pictures in their minds and then they can't make reality look like the picture, like of the catching the football or the drawing of a, something specific. And it's really, really frustrating for them because there's older kids who are six, seven, eight, they know that they can have a picture in their mind and it likely isn't going to be exactly like that way in reality. But five-year-olds are so new to the being able to picture something in their mind that they haven't figured out yet that like, it's not going to look just like what I pictured in my head, you know? Yeah. I can experience and practice. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so Stephanie, I hope that that was helpful for you. It was very, it was very helpful. Thank you. Okay, good. Okay. So thanks for listening today. Um, remember to subscribe to the podcast and if it was helpful, leave me a review that really helps others find the podcast and join us in this really important work of um, creating a parenthood that we don't have to escape from and creating a childhood for our kids that they don't have to recover from. And if you're listening, grab a screenshot and tag me on Instagram so that I can give you a shout out. Um, and definitely go follow me on Instagram. I'm at Laura Froyan PhD. Um, that's where you can get a behind the scenes look at what balanced conscious parenting looks like in action with my family. And plus I share a lot of other really great resources there too. All right. That's it for me today. I hope that you keep taking really good care of your kids and your family and each other, and most importantly of yourself. And just remember, balance is a verb and you're already doing it. You've got this.